Marvin Goldfried is a distinguished professor of psychology at Stony Brook University, where he helped develop the graduate program in clinical psychology. He's the co-founder of the Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration. Alan Francis is a professor of psychiatry and chair emeritus at Duke and was chair of the DSM-4 task force. Marvin describes the evolution of his psychotherapy orientation as psychodynamic, behavioral, CBT, and eventually integrative. He practices, teaches, and supervises what works clinically using direct and indirect evidence base. Alan describes his approach to psychotherapy as whatever works or no one size fits all. He was trained and taught at the Columbia University Psychoanalytic Center, but remains equally interested in brief, supportive, cognitive, behavioral, interpersonal, and family therapies. Please enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to our fourth podcast, Talking Psychotherapy. This is Marvin Goldfried, and my colleague is... Alan Francis. That's right. Well, so far, so good. So this is... (laughs) Would you believe it? This is our fourth... That's the, the easy part. You did the easy part, Marvin. Now go for the hard part. Okay, wait. I just want to bring people up to date. The first podcast was how is the psychotherapy relationship like and unlike any other human relationship? The second podcast is why is it that I am at my best as a person or human being when I'm doing psychotherapy? The third magic moments in life and therapy. And today's topic is becoming a good therapist using our heads instead of a manual. So let me, let me start off with the notion of manuals and give a little historical note because I think it's, it's, it's relevant to, uh, to training. Um, Gordon Paul, a very, very bright and very creative uh, psychologist, got his PhD at Stanford in the 60s. And his dissertation involved a comparison of psychodynamic therapy with behavior therapy. And the behavior therapy was systematic desensitization. And basically systematic desensitization, which was used for people who were anxious in uh, public speaking situations, involved creating a hierarchy of situations where the person might be in, in a speaking situation, such as the size or the composition of the audience, the length and things like that. Um, create the hierarchy, teach them how to relax, and then have them imagine each scene in the hierarchy one step at a time from the bottom under conditions of relaxation. So this was a technique that was used in very early days of behavior therapy. And in order to do this, he got psychodynamic therapists to serve as the therapist in the study and taught them desensitization with a manual. How do you do, how do you create a hierarchy? How do you do a relaxation induction? How do you do the whole thing? Uh, and published it finally in book form. And what he found was that the desensitization condition was better than the psychodynamic condition and, and also placebo and weightless controls. So as far as I know, that was the first manual. I don't know whether you've know that history of manuals or, or not. Yeah, I was aware of it, Marvin. But thanks for, I, I think it's really interesting how that small PhD dissertation then mushroomed 
into the manual industry. Right. And the manual industry, as we both well know, uh, was mandated in order to get research funding from the NIMH. So, Oops. what's it? Oops, because Oops. you and I both, you and I are both, though we both have great reservations about the use of manuals, the overuse of manuals, you and I are both guilty, Marvin. We were both on the committee in 1981 that uh, NIMH established to decide which grants would be funded or not. Yeah. And no, and, and that committee assignment, by the way, is one of the best things in my career, partly because I met you, yeah. but even more important than that, because it funded the early CBT studies and the early DBT studies that have helped millions and millions of people. It was a great moment for us. Right. But no study would ever be funded unless it was manualized, unless the psychotherapy was manualized. It would be seen as a fatal flaw of the study if there weren't a manual. But now let's go back to the, to the purpose of it. Yes, we were both guilty. And, and um, it's a, a weak defense, but we were both following orders. We said, you know, <laughs> you, had, you, you had to do this. Um, but the purpose was methodological. It was not so much used in subsequent studies for training, but rather as a way of documenting the nature of the therapy. Because studies before this were, we didn't know what went on in the sessions. So this had to be documented and the people had to follow the guidelines, but they were trained therapists. This was not used for training. It was used methodologically to make sure they did therapy A versus therapy B. And it was the analogy that was used was to how you would conduct the randomized control for medication. You'd want to know what's the medication and what's the dosage of the medication. Exactly. How is it being delivered? And the idea was that if we're going to be testing psychotherapies against each other, and even more importantly, psychotherapies against medications, we should try to establish, even though it's impossible, but try to establish to the best uh, degree a kind of standardization of the therapy so that we'd be able to interpret the results. Exactly. And, and it, it, made, it made sense. Um, the training aspect of the training use of it that came afterwards was an unintended consequence. Yeah, the, the BECs are, although the BECs had to develop manuals to get by our committee and get funded, um, they've been very, very clear that in their own training and their own therapy, they don't believe in the use of manuals. That's the, the sort of paradox of this whole thing was to get funding for your study, you had to use a manual, even though if you were going to be applying the manual in everyday practice, or if you would be training cl clinicians, you would never use the manual. Right. Weird paradox. But there's, there's another element too, that we'll be discussing at a, at a future uh, uh, podcast or more than a few, maybe more than one future podcast. And that's the notion of uh, the diagnosis. Because in the mid 80s, well, but prior to the 80s, there were manuals, and I, and I wrote manuals for dealing with very specific clinical problems, such as um, anxiety in test-taking situations. So it was like the Gordon Paul thing of the desensitization, except we then compared it with a cognitive intervention. So it was a very specific kind of clinical problem. Um, but, but then in the 80s, um, this is when the NIMH be became very medicalized. Uh, we had to have 
DSM diagnoses and real patients in order to get funding. Oops, I guess I'm to blame for that too. Yes, you're to blame for that. But there was somebody, somebody very astute who wrote something and said a DSM diagnosis is insufficient for deciding on the treatment to use. Clinicians will need considerably more information above and beyond the diagnosis. Who is that guy? You. I know. Actually, <laughs> in the we planned the DSM group, DSM three group in the early eighties, planned to do another book that was to describe formulations that would make sense for given diagnoses and yeah. possible treatments that would be directed to the, the given diagnosis to make clear that no evaluation should ever stop at a DSM diagnosis. It should always have a formulation and a treatment plan, but we were too lazy and, and sidetracked and it was never done. Well, didn't you write a book, Differential? Di differential? Yeah, I wrote a book called Differential Therapeutics. Therapeutics with John Clark. And that was my effort to make up for what the DSM group didn't do. Yeah. So here's something you don't know. You gave grand rounds at Cornell Medical Center um, describing DSM-4. And in that, you said, uh, you, you expressed some of your hesitations about making a diagnosis. And I know you don't want to get into that whole thing because that, that's a very hot topic that's going to take us too far afield. But you said what you said is that in the introduction, I wrote a cautionary note about the use and misuse of the diagnosis. And then you added, but nobody's ever going to read that. I was in the audience. Oh. At your <laughs> the funny thing is you remember it and I don't. That's right. Well, it's like everything in therapy. A combination of you having a great memory and me being partially demented. No, that may be true. But, but the, the other thing is, it's like what we were talking about in a previous podcast. The therapist says something, it has an impact. Uh, therapist forgets it, but it has a major impact on, on the patient. So anyway, you said no one's going to read it. So that gave me my motivation. And I read it and I, I've quoted it many, many times. And basically, and we're not going to get into this now, promise you. But what that does, that comment negates the validity of clinical trials. Because if more information is needed in order to intervene and clinical trials are being run with a DSM diagnosis and a manual, and that's being marketed as here's the way you do therapy, you essentially were saying in that passing comment that don't pay attention. Clinicians don't don't necessarily do what we're doing here in research. It's, it's a very powerful comment, Marvin. I, I think it's crucial to be careful about diagnosis, but not worship it as if it's a biblical uh, statement and, and sufficient by itself. And what you're saying now is, is, is interesting in so many ways. First thing that comes to mind is that to get into a research study, you almost have to be atypical for people who are seen in practice that people who are suicidal, who have multiple problems, comorbidity, substance use, they're never seen in studies. The studies are very narrow in their selection criteria. Patients are way more complicated than, than any of the people who are seen in research studies. And yet the term evidence-based has now taken on a magical kind of power. It determines, in many countries, it determines who can get 
what kinds of therapies can be offered. Some insurance companies have that, that idea. Right. Evidence-based now means this is good and everything else is bad. Well, no, that's not true. That's uh, empirically supported treatment is the conclusion that you draw about an intervention with a clinical trial. Evidence-based has to do with all sorts of evidence. So basic research, research on process, psychopathology research are all points of evidence. Let's save evidence-based versus empirically supported treatments for, for another podcast, because it's very, very confused in the literature. People equate it and it's just not the case. Uh, um, okay, I'm getting very excited because that, aggrava <laughs> that aggravates me in many ways, but I'm not going to get there. We'll save that, my aggravation for, for Calm another Calm down, I Marvin. What's that? What's a little relaxation therapy? <laughs> nah, that stuff doesn't work. Um, okay, now, uh, where, where are we on this? Oh, yeah, right. So here's, here's the implication for training. The methodological notion of random assignment is not what goes on in supervision. You don't tell your supervisee to randomly pick a treatment. You say, do a case formulation. Whether you're psychodynamic and you call it looking at the dynamics or whether you're CBT, you, you say it's a functional analysis. You wanna look at those factors that have to be the focus for this particular patient that's creating the symptoms or creating the interpersonal problems. So the treatment follows clinically from case formulation. That was um, certainly within CBT and psychodynamic, that was always the case prior to the 80s in clinical trials. But we swallowed clinical trials whole. Yeah, one of the things that I've always said to trainees when we start supervision is follow the patient. Don't follow, hmm. don't, don't follow your pre preconceived notions. Don't follow your supervisor, in this case me. Don't follow manuals. Follow the patient. And I That's think it's, the title of this talk has having to do with the head versus the manual. It's not just the head, it's also the heart and your intuitions. Right. And these are things that are very hard to impossible to include in a manual. So if anyone who follows a manual slavishly will always be, or supervises slavishly, will always be a week behind the patient saying things that make no sense at that moment, that it's very useful to learn the techniques that might be manualized, but never to apply them in, right. in a form that's rigid. Right. Okay. So let's talk about who the, the villains are. And I, I think to some extent, from our point of view, we did things without that had to be done at the time methodologically. So I don't think we're to blame, but here's, here's, here's what happened. Um, the manuals were written in order, to, you have to have the manual written in order to get funded, okay? Publishers then approached the people who were doing the research and said, we can publish your manual. So manuals were published even before the results of the clinical trial came in. You know, talk about drug companies pushing medications based on finances. This, within the field of psychotherapy, publishing houses have to publish each year 
we the field doesn't advance that quickly. So it's published, therefore, it, and it's used in a clinical trial. Well, that, that's you know, pretty good promotion. Yeah, and I think that there's nothing inherently wrong with having manuals and reading manuals. I think they can be useful for, for clinicians. They can even be useful for patients to read. But there's something terribly wrong with slavishly following them. But people sometimes do that because, as you pointed out, you know, it's evidence. This has at least evidence rather than, so if you're empirically oriented and you're a graduate student, a young professional, and the education you're getting is, you know, we need to have this as a science. None of these woolly-headed clinical folks where they just say, I just had that feeling or that intuition. So we need this and, and you've got to follow the evidence. Well, they swallow it whole and say, I can't depart from the manual. And I've experienced this with some students who wouldn't take suggestions I made because it wasn't in the manual. There were some remarkably dumb studies published shortly after the first wave of results for manualized therapy that suggested that if you slavishly followed the manual, you got better results. There would be adherence ratings of the sessions and the sessions that were closest to the manual were with those patients who did best in the therapy and ignoring the correlations, not causality, the articles implied that if you follow the manual just exactly as laid out, you'll have better results. The thing that was stupid about that was that the easy patients allowed you to follow the manual. The causality was backwards. Tough patients forced you to be creative and you would normally not get, you couldn't expect to get as good an outcome with those patients. So the, the brainwashing, it was kind of like propaganda. You need to use a manual, and the closer you follow it, the better your results will be. Absolutely wrong on both counts. Well, there's also research to show if you follow the manual too closely, the therapy doesn't work. So two studies, one done at uh, Hans Strupp's research group. Uh, the senior author was uh, Bill Henry. And what they found, and this was, this was uh, women and to a great extent, women who were very unassertive uh, in, uh, uh, in Nashville, those were the patients. And by session, I think maybe two or three, you had to bring in a transference interpretation. Okay. So I listened to one of these videos, and this was a video of a, of a patient who got worse, where she says, okay, well, how does the therapy work? You know, we did the assessment. And... And the therapist says, you want me to tell you? He interpreted her question as an example of transference. And he wouldn't tell her. And she was saying, well, I've never been in therapy before. And the first couple of sessions, we just did information. So, so how does the therapy work? Why do you think I'm not giving you this information? <laughs> so not only was he following the manual, but there was a little bit of a hostile dig. And the research showed that when there is that little hostile dig and, and, and it was coded reliably, the patients got worse. So that's one study. So I think, I think therapists, good therapists, come to the experience of both clinical work and also training with tremendous background of skills in how to deal with people. They have inbuilt hardware 
that's kind of manual for how should I deal with people that they've learned since they were uh, six months old or earlier. Yeah. And then suddenly they're in a, a situation where they feel uncomfortable. The supervisor says, do this. The manual says, do this. And often they'll leave all the skills they had before at the door, all of their common sense, all of their ability to get along with people. And they'll rigidly follow in the stupidest way possible, either the manual or the supervisor. Right. I was guilty of that myself early in training. And when I realized it didn't work well, I felt tremendous freedom to try to combine the things I was learning right. with my own common sense. Yeah, it's a guideline, not a straitjacket. Exactly. But here, here's the other study. And it, I really want to promote this because this was a dissertation of Louis Castonguay's, who's now at Penn State, and he was my mentee. And I supervised him on this. And he, it was a, an analysis of a cognitive therapy, and I forget what the other condition was, might have been interpersonal, that was done at University of Minnesota, Beck's Cognitive Therapy. And we got the transcripts and we coded them. And when we coded them, we found out that when therapists made connections like between thinking and feeling, the patient got worse. And it's like, this is crazy. And so Louis says, I don't know what it is. I said, okay, Louis, let's take a look at the transcripts. He says, oh, no, I with a French, Canadian French accent, which I can't, I can't imitate. But he said, oh, no, no, uh, it's too much trouble. Anyway, he looked at it and you know what he found? He found that when these connections were made, it was usually when the therapist was following the manual inappropriately. So here's a, a, an example of one of the cases. Woman comes in and says, I'm very, very upset. What is it? I had always suspected my husband was having an affair and I saw him in a car with this woman and I'm really, really upset. And the therapist says, well, let's examine the thoughts that you have that are making you upset. And she says, what do you mean? Let's examine the thoughts. My, my husband is having an affair. And this is, well, yeah, but now there are thoughts that you have. And there were lots of instances like this. This was a more dramatic one um, where somebody was coming, somebody, another patient came in and says, I don't think, you know, I'm really disappointed with the, this form of therapy. I think more is involved. Well, let's, let's see what your thinking is about your disappointment that's causing you to be... They just redoubled, doubled down on the intervention and they didn't fix the alliance. So then when we coded for alliance, we found that, that these, pace, these cases that contributed to the problem of, of, of cognitive therapy working were in the context of a bad alliance and the therapist didn't do anything about the alliance because it was not in the manual. Well, that's one of my pet peeves that anytime a therapist sounds like a therapist uses the usual cliche therapy type remarks that you might expect to see in a movie or that are actually in manuals, it kills the treatment. Therapists should never be cliches. Therapists should always be with the patient in a way that's grabbing their attention and not saying things or doing things that have become so routine, routinized that they lose all meaning and they, they stall the relationship rather than furthering it. Yep. Sounds like Carl Rogers. Okay. Genuineness. Here we go. We only have a few more minutes, Marvin, and now I'm going to put you on the spot. 
Yeah. We've discussed what the diagnosis of the problem is. Now figure out what the solution is. Is there a role for manuals at all outside of research? If so, how should they be used? How should they be taught? Um, what's the mechanism of combining what's valuable in manuals, which is a statement of the techniques that are basic to a particular approach with, that may be very useful with some patients without reifying it, make it seem like this is the only way you can do it. And also dividing therapies, because if you have 50 different therapies, you're going to have 50 different manuals that people right. learning, they won't be able to integrate it. Can you even touch on that? This will be the source I'm sure many discussions we'll have in the future. Well, okay. You, you want the short answer? Of the, you want the short answer or the long answer? I want the very short answer. The, the, very, short, the, the very short tiny, answer. The tiniest answer. Yes. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> it depends on the kind of manual. But the manuals are not enough. The, man, the thing about a manual is that it's written with words. You've got to see it. It's like what we were talking about in, the, in, a, in a past podcast, when I'm learning to ski, and I had trouble bending my knees until I bent my knees the right way. You have to have an exemplar. You have to have an experiential uh, exemplar in order to learn. And you can learn some of that from the manual, but the manual is not enough. And in fact, there are people now that are working on a whole new way of training and uh, of therapy. Uh, it's a 21st century method. Uh, and it uses videos as well as manuals. And it uses practice, deliberate practice. Uh, and it uses situations that are high-frequency situations that are trans-theoretical, such as problems with the alliance. The kinds of things that experienced therapists do. And it's codifying that. And that's, well, very, that's very exciting. Say, say a lot more about that, I think, in the last minutes. That's the most valuable Well, thing I can't say a lot more of that because you want to stop talking. No, I want you to um, give a context that maybe we'll go into in the next in the next uh, meeting on so our thousands okay. and thousands of listeners okay. will know what to do next. Okay. How, what can they read? What can they, how can okay. they follow up on this? Uh, well, they can, they can read the works of, um, of uh, Mike Constantino, of James Boswell, of uh, Catherine Eubanks, of Tony Vaz. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of people that are doing this that are making use of video training for specific situations that some years ago, I mean, this is just going to go on, Alan, you, you wanted the short answer, but it's, you're asking me to give a short answer. <laughs> <laughs> this is a headline. We'll, Listen, we'll, why don't we, why don't, why don't we make our next, why don't we make this as our, our next podcast? Very, very good. What, what can we, we are still doing 20th, for the most part, 20th century training. Reading and supervision and talking about. And we have the technology, we have uh, the potential of, of thousands upon thousands of experienced clinicians that are available to have input on good clinical training. It's not clinical trials, thank goodness, um, but it could be evidence. 
it's another form of evidence. Yeah, one of the things that's been remarkable to me is that when I've seen the, the really terrific therapists do therapy, whether it's sometimes in person, a lot of times on videotape, they all look so much more alike. Yes. Would think they would be if you just read the, the, the stuff their followers write. The followers always tend to be much truer to the ideas and not in a good way, excessively loyal to the ideas of the founders than the founders themselves. And the founders themselves look a lot alike when they're actually with the patient. That's because they're following the patient. They're not following a manual. Exactly. So like if, we, any, if anyone is in very different ways, Marvin, what's that? You and, I, you and I have had completely different training experiences, very different clinical experiences. But my guess is that if we were faced with the very same patient, it, it, it's very likely that we would be doing very, very many of the same things. I think so. I think so. I think, um, as I've said before, Skinner was right. Patients reinforce us for doing what works. And the more reinforcement we get, the greater the likelihood that what works cuts across different theoretical orientations. How's that for an ending? Perfect ending. And I think we have a good topic for next week. So. Right. Oh, we should also, you were going to ask about feedback from people and suggestions. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, you know, we, we've just started this and we don't really think we know what we're doing. So far, the responses have been remarkably, remarkably positive. Lots more people are seeing and listening to the podcast than we ever dreamed would. Um, I think it's proof of concept that we're going to continue with this. It's working. People like it. It's helpful. It's hard for us to understand how because we're just chatting, but apparently listening to our chatting is helpful. It, our experiences are helpful in your experiences and your um, learning and your work with patients. But we need a lot of direction. So the more people can respond to this, either on the uh, um, actual podcast uh, response sites or even easier to, to Marvin and I are both on Twitter very frequently. Uh, my handle, I think, is at Alan Francis MD. Marvin's is at Mar Goldfried Marvin. Why did you get it backwards, Marvin? After all these years, it couldn't be Marvin Goldfried. But regardless, I think if you comment to us, we will be we've already gotten dozens and dozens of comments and it's helping us shape what the topic could be and how we should interact with one another. And that we want your help, your help in helping us. Sounds good. Talk to you next week, Alan. See, it's always fun, Marvin. Bye.